Good morning, brothers. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 22. For those of you who were not here last week or have forgotten what we studied last week, we were looking at the architecture of the temple or the tabernacle, the tent in the Old Testament before the construction of the temple. And uh, we walked into that uh, Old Testament tabernacle and noticed that the architecture itself uh, conveys to us our separation from God in our fallen state. Our sins have, have made it impossible for us to access the intimate presence of God. We come first to the altar and you had to sacrifice a, an animal on that altar and then you go past that to the table of of, um, of showbread and the, the 12 uh, uh, loaves there and then, uh, then there was a, a lamp representing the presence of God and then there was a, uh, a, uh, an altar of incense and all of that before getting to a very thick second curtain that guarded the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies contained the the Ark of the Covenant, where the law was contained. We need to turn this down a little bit. And, uh, and the mercy seat on top of it, there had to be a sacrifice first for the priest and then the sacrifice for the people. The priest's sacrifice was a bull. The uh, people's sacrifice was one of the goats. And the other goat was the scapegoat. And... Um, only after that sacrifice was, those sacrifices were acceptable or accepted, could the priest live. And if the priest lived, then he could come out and give a blessing to the people. Well, we are now in the Holy of Holies. We are, by this sanctified imagination that the writer of Hebrews gives us, he takes us into the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament tent and he tells us, and we'll notice this even more in the latter part of, of Hebrews chapter 9, he tells us that this, is not, um, that this is not the picture, the, the, uh, this is not the presence, where the presence of God is. This is a picture of the reality in heaven, that there is a place where God dwells in all His holiness. And I can't, sorry to keep interrupting. We need to turn that down a little more. It just, gets, it just creeps up because I'll get more excited and it'll get louder. And then, so let's trim it down. Whoever's over there doing something on this wall. Um, that that is all designed to tell us, I guess that's fine, is to, to tell us what is actually in heaven. What has actually been done in heaven, what is being done in heaven. And so now he begins to take back not the veil of the Old Testament tent, but he's peeling back the curtain of heaven itself to convey to us what has been done once and for all for our sins and what is being done. So I want you to ask the Spirit now as we read this text to transport you not just back to the Old Testament for its imagery, but to transport you by the Spirit all the way into heaven that you can see there the good news that He has for you and for me 
who are in Christ this morning. Verse 11, Hebrews chapter 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of the creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, or we could say a testament where a testament is involved. For a will or a testament takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Would you open our eyes, O Lord, to understand, not just to understand this text. Would you open our eyes? to see what has been done for us, what is continually being done for us who have trusted in Christ in heaven itself. Give us sanctified imaginations to see and grasp by faith what you, the last lamb, have accomplished for those who trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's men said together, amen. There's an old story Harry Ironside used to tell. Harry Ironside, the famous evangelist in the uh, 20s and 30s, uh, about uh, a a young man who was a friend, whose father was a friend of Tsar Nicholas I. And uh, this uh, young man needed a job. So his dad made connection to Tsar Nicholas I and made him an exchequer, a, a payroll manager uh, for the, one of the barracks. And uh, that uh, man was uh, a generally uh, good young man, but he was irresponsible and started making some really bad decisions like using the king's money, the Tsar's money, to gamble. Racked up some gambling debts, and he thought, oh, I'll just borrow from the treasury here. I have access to the treasury. I'll borrow from it, and then uh, I'll win enough in the next time, or I'll save up some money on my next paycheck, and I'll pay it back. 
Well, then he got a, a horrifying uh, telegraph one day that, that um, someone from the king's administration, the czar's administration, was coming to check the books. And so he tallied up how much he had borrowed, and he pulled out of his wallet how much he had. And he put both on the table, and of course what he had was nowhere close to what he owed. So he determined that the only way out was to kill himself. He took out his revolver, made sure it was loaded, and then he thought, I'll wait to the stroke of midnight, and then I'll kill myself. That man wrote on that sheet of paper when he made that decision, a great debt, who can pay? That's what faces you in the Scriptures. When the Scriptures open your heart to you, you and I must answer every time a great debt, who can pay? I preached yesterday at our Ash Wednesday service. Ash Wednesday marks the 40, 40 days before, 40 weekdays before Easter. And on Ash Wednesday or the season of Lent, we focus on repentance and humility in order to approach the cross of Christ in Easter with greater appreciation and and I said, we are, we are accustomed to having our hearts warmed with the thought, if I had been the only person alive, Jesus would have died for me. But we must also face this. If I had been the only person who ever sinned, my sins would be enough to have caused the Son of God to die. The cross is not something necessary just for those really bad sinners. The cross is necessary for everyone, each one of our sins. Now, if we study Christ-centered teaching together, we'll say the very first thing you must do in every text is ask, what is the need exposed for redemption? And the need exposed for redemption in this text and we've seen it a lot in Hebrews, haven't we? The need exposed in this text is we need forgiveness of sins. And what he's been telling us and what he'll keep telling us to the very end is there is no other forgiveness of sins except in Jesus Christ. And therefore, you must turn away from every other attempt every other version, every other religious pro proposition for how you can find forgiveness for your sins. The need is for forgiveness. The supply is Jesus provides forgiveness. And the response must be turn away from everything else you're trying to find forgiveness in, even in yourself, and turn to Jesus alone. Now the rest of the text answers why. Why is it that Jesus, how is it that Jesus provides forgiveness for our sins? It is because of these four things, these four characteristics of the covenant he ratified. The covenant of salvation, the covenant of grace that he makes for us. And here are the four characteristics. It, they are eternal. Uh, it is eternal. It purifies the conscience. It's a gift, 
and it's ratified by blood. Let's look at these in turn, beginning in verses 11 and 12, with um, this oft-neglected uh, teaching that's found in this, in this passage, that, the, that the, the, the covenant that God, not just Christ, secured for us, but God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit secured for us is eternal. Look at these words again, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So we're already alerted that, that he's trying to tell us something that the tent was only representing, but something that is in heaven or something that is outside of time and space, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Now, let me tell you a, distinctions that, that, uh, a distinction that uh, theologians sometimes make, often make. When we talk about that, that, that single plan of salvation that runs from Genesis to Revelation, and, and we've been emphasizing that we are always, we have always only been saved by grace alone through faith. That there's never been another version of salvation as if God had a plan A in the garden, that didn't work. Plan B in the, in the, in the wilderness, that didn't work. And plan C with uh, judges, that didn't work. But <clears throat> he's always had the same plan. Abraham was saved by believing God, by faith, receiving a gift of righteousness. We call that the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. That, that unfolding of the salvation plan experienced in time and history by people. But we distinguish that in theology from the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption stands outside of time, precedes time, precedes creation itself. And the covenant of redemption was a covenant, an agreement, a plan, a pact made among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the covenant that is being uh, referenced here, this eternal covenant, this secured and eternal covenant of redemption. And the very first place you read about it being alluded to in history is in Genesis 1 verse 26. Let us make man in our image. When God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit conferred on making man, they were taking the first step in executing their plan that they had made from all of eternity, and that was that they were going to redeem a people for themselves. They said so, let us make man now. Let us make man in our image. We've made, we have made the creation as the arena in which we're going to carry out this plan. And now it's time to make man in this arena. And we're going to make him, and by implication, remake him in our image. Because he is going to fall. He is going to be uh, in a damnable state. He must needs be redeemed. And he can only be redeemed by 
one of us laying our lives down for him, who will that be? The son says, I'll do it. I delight to do your will, oh my God. So I will become flesh because they in their flesh have sinned against us. I will maintain my divinity and I will live and die in their place and rise for their redemption. Have you thought about that before? Have you thought about this fact? That your redemption was not an afterthought. It wasn't even an afterthought in the garden. It wasn't that God looked and said, I had the greatest plan. We were going to walk in the garden every day in the cool of the day. And you had to go and mess things up. Now let me see what we're going to do. No. The the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 3 that he made all things in order that his manifold wisdom might be redeemed, might be revealed. The whole purpose of creation, the whole purpose of history, the whole purpose of the making of man in God's image was so that he could redeem man through his son for the praise of his glorious grace. That is the covenant of redemption, and it becomes known in history as the covenant of grace. Now, I want you to turn, uh, I, don't, I try not to do these sword drills with you, but I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see it in one more place. I'm not going to camp on every point as long as this one, but because this one is not often made, uh, I want you to see it. I want you to see this Trinitarian involvement in your redemption planned before the foundation of the world and then executed through every member of the Trinity. Every member of the Trinity had a part in saving us from our sins and keeping us into all eternity. Here's Peter. He opens his 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, verse 1, he opens his, uh, his letter like this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion and so forth, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood, grace and peace to you. You hear it? The foreknowledge of God the Father. God said, I have a plan. I have want to save a people for myself. And so God so loved the world. Christ said, I delight to do your will. The only way I can save a people for myself is for, is for you, my son, to become like them and die in their place, to become obedient in their place. See it? To sprinkle your blood, to die in their place, to obey in their place and die in their place. And then what's the Spirit's role? The Spirit's role is to apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ. Jesus, God plans it. Jesus purchased it. The Spirit applies it. We don't make enough of the Trinity. We don't think enough of the Trinity. I have a a friend who spends every Sunday reading something about the Trinity. It's an old practice, actually, that he learned from, from uh, saints in the past because the Trinity is beyond us, and so we tend to think about only what we can, what we can understand, but it will, it will only enhance your encouragement. It will only make you more bold in your Christian life the more you think about the fact 
that my salvation in, in Christ is infallible because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, before all worlds, before anything was made, made a covenant with each other to secure you for themselves into all of eternity. We need forgiveness of sins, and Jesus supplies it through an eternal covenant. Number two, it purifies the conscience. We don't need as much time here because we've we spent a whole lesson on that last time, but just in case, let's... Uh, Give it a little bit of attention here in verses 13 and 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our consciences from dead works? So we've talked a lot about those animal sacrifices that were prescribed in the Old Testament for the purification of flesh. What do they mean by that? Uh, it, it means that God was, God was putting into their human experience these objective symbols of what he was really doing, truly doing in this covenant of redemption in this spiritual realm. So I want you to, I want you to slit the throat of an animal, pour its blood out on the altar. Not because I need, God said, I don't need animal sacrifices. You need to understand that your sins are costly. It's a life and death matter. You need to see and hear the agony of an animal dying. You farm boys know that. Some of, some of us can be removed from that, but if you've ever had to kill an animal either to eat or if you've seen an animal suffering as it's dying after you've hunted it, it's a miserable thing. And God said, I want you to look at that misery. I want you to hear it. I want you to smell it because that's the way your sin is. And so they had to do that. It was prescribed for them to do that. And they, they, they eventually thought, oh, we are doing this. And every time we do it, then God God forgives us. We gain righteousness. And, and he says throughout redemptive history, I don't know, that's not, you're not, you're not earning righteousness by those things. I'm making you do those things so that you will look through them and look to me for your genuine forgiveness. So those things purified the flesh. That is, they satisfied an external code. They were checkboxes. You had to do them. But that's all they did. They only satisfied an external legal code. And you know, he says, you know to these, he says to these faithful Jewish practitioners, you know they didn't work to bring forgiveness for you. You know it in your own consciences. Because you know as soon as you, you, you kill that, that, uh, that lamb and the priest said, your sins are forgiven, you walked out of the temple, you sinned again, and you thought, oh, my goodness, i got to go find another one. It didn't work to cleanse your conscience. Why? Because, remember Genesis 1.26? Let us make man in our image. Man is going to reflect us. He's going to think like us. He is going to be in sync with us ideally. And when he's out of sync with us, he will feel it. He will know it. Paul tells us a similar thing in Romans 1. 
that God writes his law on our consciences. He tells us from the creation that we are made from him. So we are wired in such a way that as long as we are at odds with God, we're unsatisfied, we're, we're anxious. We are trying in all kinds of ways to find satisfaction, to find fulfillment. We're never at peace until, as Augustine said, until we find our peace with God. Or Pascal said, we have this God-shaped vacuum in us, this hole in our hearts that can only be filled by God. So as long as you're trusting in those external rights, you didn't have any peace of conscience because God made you to be ill at ease until you found reconciliation in His provision of salvation. We need a covenant then that was made outside of time and space, one that we can't mess up. It's the eternal, eternal redemption. We need forgiveness of sins that is brought in a genuine way that purifies our conscience, that convinces us in our consciences, I am forgiven. That's what we have in Jesus. Number three, we need forgiveness that is given to us freely. We can only be forgiven uh, by a gift. Can I go back? I just feel like I've got to go back and say something else about, about uh, purification of conscience, especially in this Lenten season. I, <clears throat> you, can, you can never find peace of conscience either until you call sin what it really is. I want to urge you in this, in this season leading up to, to uh, Easter, as our confession says, to confess particular sins particularly. Just uh, flashed in my mind several, several uh, men, uh, uh, women too, but uh, just a couple of men's faces flashed into my mind as I was about to make that transition of men who, uh, who sinned in, in different ways. Some, uh, sometimes it was uh, one was sexual sin, was one was uh, a financial sin, and uh, they came into my office and they they called it everything but what it actually was. You know, like, um, well, I just uh, I've been a bad boy, uh, or you know, I just uh, I I was really trying to help people. And uh, in those kinds of situations, you've just got to let that silence linger for a while. Because if they belong to Christ, the Spirit is screaming at them in their consciences. You know, you've been more than a bad boy. You have sinned against your marriage bed. You've sinned against your children. You have demeaned your wife. You have brought humiliation on the gospel of Christ. And the Bible says, adulterers will not be found in the kingdom of God. And do you call it adultery? Until you call it, if you're unmarried, fornication. Until you call it extortion or thievery. Until you admit that you lied. Until you call it what God calls it. He has no solution for it. 
because he provides forgiveness of sins. He doesn't provide forgiveness for lapses of judgment. He doesn't provide forgiveness for mistakes. He doesn't provide forgiveness for being misunderstood. Call your sin what it is. Trace it all the way to its root. And there, experience the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. Though it's as scarlet, though it's as crimson. All right, purifies his conscience. Now my conscience is clear that I've at least rounded that out a little more. Now, third point, it's a gift. This forgiveness is only a gift. Can't be earned like these Jews had begun to think. God never gave them the impression that they could earn it. They invented another religion. It's just what we do. We take the gifts of God and we try to make them into works. And we do it with all kinds of things, don't we? And we do it with uh, the gift of worship. God gives us a gift of worship. What do we do? We try to make it into something that He's going to, by which He's going to forgive us. If I go to worship this many times, we take the gifts of the sacraments, which He gives us baptism, the Lord's Supper. He gives us these things as aids to our consciences, and we try to make them into something that will earn salvation for us. But God insists that salvation is by grace alone. You can only receive it. You can only receive forgiveness. Now, I want you to look at the very interesting way that he makes this. You've got to pay attention here. And uh, you lawyers can help uh, a lot of us to understand this a little better. But you lawyers, don't press this language too far. It's just an illustration. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, let me say this first of all. Here, I'm going to teach you a Greek word. The Greek word that is translated covenant in, um, in the New Testament is diatheke. Say it with me, diatheke. You're, you're fast. You didn't say it, but I'm just saying that you did say it. Therefore, he is the mediator of a diatheke. That's the word. It's, a, it's, a, it's covenant, but it's also translated here will uh, in the ESV or testament. It's the same word, but they use different words because uh, he uses different words because he is, he is explaining the same thing with the same word but different nuances, all right? So let's read it again. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where a, now the same word is used, but here our translators give a different translation, for a will or a testament takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Let's stop there. <clears throat> And why, why does he use the same word but two different nuances? Because a covenant was made between two living people. That is, a human covenant, a, co a contract. 
made between two people, living people. You don't make a, a contract with a dead person to buy a piece of property, right? They've got to be alive. Uh, don't get too technical with me with estates and trusts and that sort of thing. Just, just go with me. Two living people, contract. In the Old Testament, a contract, a covenant, had to be sealed with blood. So theologians say a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered, a covenant with people. But a, a, a human covenant is usually sealed with blood. Well, he wants to make the point that, that, that this covenant of grace that we are recipients of is unilateral. It's initiated by God before all creation. He's the one who has to pursue us. He's the one who has to draw us to himself. He's the one who has to fulfill all the conditions of it. He is the one who gives us the, the benefits of it. We, we, we respond in faith, but then the Bible teaches us that even the faith by which we respond is a gift of God. So he wants to, he wants to relieve us of any illusion that we have done something to participate in to the point that we earned this forgiveness. So he draws on another image in his day, a Roman image of a last will and testament. And, and uh, uh, we, we stand in that, in that uh, heritage of someone determining before they die, this is what I want to give to my heirs. I want to give them this, this amount of money or this land. But they're only going to get it after I die. You know, that's what made the prodigal son story so offensive. The prodigal son comes and says, I want it before you die. And so so, uh, so you, you, want to give your, you, you, you want to give your children some money. You want to give them a, a, a nest egg, so you write it in your will. And then after you, you're dead, then an executor reads it and says, this is what... He wanted to give you, and here by his, I have fiduciary authority to, to pass this on to you. And furthermore, only you can give what is yours to your heirs. You can't say, you know, uh, brother so-and-so over there has a lot of money. I think I'll write in my will that when I die... My children get his money. That didn't work either. You can only give what you have to your children and, or your heirs, and they can only receive it. Again, lawyers, don't press me too much on this, but in an ordinary world, there are no conditions to receiving that other than the death of the person who is giving, the testator. Now, here's the point he's making. In this eternal plan of redemption, God said, I want to save a people for myself. And I want to save them in such a way that for all of eternity, all the praise will go to my glorious grace. So the only way they can be saved is to receive the grace that I will give them. 
And now, if you've read, if you read Paradise Lost, John Milton, it's not scripture, but it's, a, it's, it's an interesting insight that in that conversation, Jesus speak, Christ speaks up and says, well, now, wait a minute. If a human being sins, only a human being can pay the price, so I'll do that. Well, but, but you, if you die, if you die, then you're not going to be there. You're the only one who has the authority to give what you've earned to, to your heir. So you have to be both the testator and the executor. That's humanly impossible. Well, not if I rise again from the dead. That's the point he's making. This is what God ingeniously designed for us. I'm going to save them by my grace alone. The only way they can be forgiven is for my son to make the sacrifice. And son, when you make that sacrifice and you earn that inheritance of righteousness that we want to give to our people, I'm going to raise you from the dead so that you can be the executor of your own last will and testament. And then, Holy Spirit, you take it to them and present it as a gift. Isn't that beautiful? We needed that. That's what God gave us. Now, the last point is that uh, it's ratified in blood, and it's ratified by the blood of God. In Christ. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, we had these images of, of uh, salvation through blood, and He is preparing us for this fact that salvation can only come through the blood of Christ. And we know that, don't we? It's woven into creation, it's woven into our consciences that when somebody spills their blood for something, you have to take that seriously. What warms our hearts as patriotic people? That men and women throughout our history have, what, shed their blood for our freedoms. And if somebody's trying to commend something to you and say, this is really important, you need to believe this, when they shed their blood for it, it convinces. Would we have been anywhere as far as we are, though we are a long way from where we need to be in terms of civil rights and racial reconciliation and racial justice, but would we have been anywhere as far as we are without the blood shed of Martin Luther King Jr. and the other heroes of that movement? Blood is precious. Blood arrests our attention, convinces us that this is something that, does, that demands our commitment. But despite anyone's best intentions, their blood, the blood of a mere human being, is always, there's always, it's always tainted with sin. But the blood that ratified our covenant is the blood shed by the sinless Son of God. And we're not speaking allegorically, metaphorically anymore when we say 
that his bloody wounds still literally in his resurrected body plead before God in that heavenly tent, that place where the covenant of redemption was made. And those those wounds stand among the Trinity and they say, our mission has been accomplished. What we set out to do from all of eternity, here is the objective proof that we will someday show to all those who who are heirs of our salvation. It is finished. We needed that and we received it. We receive it in the gift of Christ. Well, let's go back to our our desperate friend, uh, the exchequer for Tsar Nicholas I who has his revolver loaded and he's waiting for the stroke of midnight before he kills himself and spills his blood on this piece of paper that shows his debts and against his resources and has the line, a great debt, who can pay? He fell asleep. He fell asleep before the stroke of midnight and uh, slept through the 12 chimes and then woke up with a start later on realizing that he had, he had missed his goal to kill himself by midnight. He real, looked down at the paper. Maybe it was a bad dream. Maybe I only dreamed that I had a great debt that nobody could pay. But there are his words again. And with his fingers on his revolver, he notices that there's something else written on the piece of paper. Apparently, Tsar Nicholas I had come to check the accounts himself. He recognizes his friend's son. He sees the scribbles on the pad and figures out what the man has been doing. He sees his hand on the revolver and understands what he's planning to do. And so Nicholas wrote across the page, across all the debts, Across the line, a great debt, who can pay? Nicholas. Young man woke up and saw that word. And hope was restored. Nicholas himself, the only one who could pay my debt. And do it authoritatively and and expunge my guilt. That man has forgiven my debt. And across your sins is written in the blood of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Signed, Jesus the Christ. 